0: Hi there, welcome to Inside MERS Investments. I'm Kristen Bellar, MERS General Counsel. I manage all of MERS legal and compliance matters. I'm here today with Jeb Burns, the Chief Investment Officer, who leads MERS Investment Team in managing over $15 billion of assets for pension and other financial accounts. Hi, Jeb. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. How are you doing? Kristen, I could not be in a better mood. So you're over the Detroit Lions brutal loss in the playoffs then?
1: It was tough, but they were in the game the whole time, and they were the real deal. Yeah. They are a team to be reckoned with in the future, so like investing. The future is bright.
0: Speaking of that, in our future, we have a special guest today that's waiting in our in our green room, so I'm not going to waste any more time with our banter, and let's get right into it. And
1: well, we need to kind of let the excitement build up for the audience.
0: Oh, exactly. Yeah, so
1: okay. we're not going to say who it is, but he's very <laughs> special.
0: Let's get to it. Let's start with our review of uh, the year and performance for 2023.
1: So... Bottom line, much, much better year than 2022. As you remember, 2022, we had a situation where interest rates went up for the first time in, in almost 40 years. So you had double-digit losses. So we finished the year at net of fees uh, 11.60. So that's Great. very strong, well above our actual rate of assumption. We're still outperforming the benchmark at the one, two, three, and 10-year mark and above the actual rate at the 5-year uh, mark. So
0: gold star for, Gold star for you? 19. And it's a seven-year
1: mark actually. So we are performing quite well. A couple highlights. Um, the one thing that everybody kind of needs to take into account is while, while the markets did very well, it was again a very narrow rally. very reminiscent of what happened in '19. In, in tech, surprised on the upside, has this large cap stock, but mostly really the top you know, eight tech companies really drove performance. So just quick some quick numbers. U.S. large cap, highest performer in, in the stock market twenty four point six eight percent small cap actually had a very nice run at about seventeen point one two percent emerging market small cap where we've been active for for many years was twenty percent and it wasn't just on the equity side fixed income did very well just us boring bonds four point nine three percent almost five percent when's the last time we saw that happen not so boring not so not, not so boring anymore emerging market debt um, had a very good year at you know double digits twelve point three eight percent. Our yield was up 11.22%. Where cyclically, you know, the privates lagged a little bit, which is, which is normal. You know, when the stock market runs here, you know, your private markets aren't going to do quite as well, but still in positive territory. You know, a little over 4% for private equity. Our diversifying strategies, which are, think of those as hedge funds. Those are things which generally uh, perform differently than stocks and bonds. They're not correlated to those areas. We have a lot of uh, credit, kind of specialized private credit in those uh, strategies that was up 17%. So that was really contributed strongly to the portfolio. And then one thing that's worth mentioning, we're talking about how there's a little more excitement in in fixed income. There's a lot more excitement in cash. We all remember for years, I mean, you didn't even, it didn't matter. I mean, you weren't making any money in your checking account. And for us, it was the same thing, but you know, our cash portfolio returned 7.64%. Now that's a little more actively managed, but you know, you're still getting in money markets, you know, over five percent. Uh, so the world has changed, and really, what that means is building a diversified portfolio. The, the traditional 60/40 portfolio, you can actually meet your objectives now. So that's that's kind of what's different. But like I said, with a narrow rally, you know, being driven really by eight stocks, it, we're cautious. So we know that there'll be some kind of uh, pullback coming. We don't know when that's going to be, but you know, we're structured in a, in, a, in a way to handle that.
0: So optimistic, but still cautious
1: cautious and, and prudent because you know, we're an institutional investor. So it's not a matter of if or one, we know that markets go up, we know markets go down. We just need to make sure that we have a portfolio that's, you know, capturing most of the upside, but protecting us on the downside so that we can meet our objectives. And we'll talk more about that later on. Yeah,
0: absolutely. Well, I know that we are, well into February now, um, but it is, is still the beginning of a new year, um, which is always a time for me, at least, for reflection on the past, which which we just, we just walked down memory lane a bit, but also for goal setting and planning for the new year. And as Mer's lawyer and compliance lead, governance and compliance are top of mind for me right now. Um, so I want to talk about those items today, but I promise I won't take over the podcast entirely, um, of course, unless my adoring fans write in and demand more. So as a governance geek, um, you know, that's pretty catchy. We should make t-shirts and say governance geek. Uh, I just want to make sure our audience first knows what we mean by good governance and why it is important to MERS, particularly with respect to investments. Governance is essentially a clear designation of rules and ro- roles. So what are the rules? Who is the decider and enforcer? How do those deciders reach their decisions? And then who does the monitoring and checking up on decisions and ensures the rules are going to be followed? While the MERS board is the ultimate fiduciary of the plan, they have day jobs. We have board members who are EMTs, who are city managers, et cetera. You know, although they have primary responsibility for, for compliance and um, investing properly and administering the plan, um, they have to delegate a lot of these duties to staff as, as, a, as, a, as a prudent fiduciary. So a lot of the stuff is delegated to your shop job as well as the board investment committee. The fiduciary role that you play is pretty critical for our customers in properly investing assets and administering the plan. So I thought, you know, we could talk a little bit about the most important aspects of MRS governance and compliance efforts, specifically how they relate to investment.
1: So everyone buckle up. It's going to be fun. I, you, you know, I, I'm also a bit of a compliance nerd, if you will. Mm-hmm. And this is not boring. It's frankly one of the most important things we do. You know, there's nothing more important than the trust people put in you in managing money, whether it's institutional capital or you're managing money for individuals. It's, it's a sacred trust. And, and that's how I take it. We have built in this organization, in my shop in particular, we have a compliance culture. I use that very phrase quite often reminding people that we're fiduciaries and what our ultimate duty is, which is to take good care of the money people entrusted to us. And I can say for a fact that the entire organization shares that that value. And what you talked about is its process. Uh, Having good governance processes in place will ensure that you can be successful. Um, So what we have is, like you said, the board's the ultimate fiduciary, uh, but they have day jobs. Two of the board members are appointed um, and they're investment professionals, so they understand that world. One's a retiree, so we've got a nice alignment there. And then we have a mix of, you know, half is employer, half is employee. So we have a very, very functional structure. So then we have an investment committee. Board chair serves on that as does uh, the CEO and myself. And then we appoint another, you know, rotating member from the general board and then the two outside investment experts. Beyond that, we have our portfolio review committee is our internal investment committee. So we have processes where we vet investments. On your team, you have a, a, you know, your deputy compliance counsel, you know, works about 90% of his time with us. And he ensures that we are adhering to our statutory requirements under Persia. He makes sure that we're following all federal regulations, right? We're doing all of our filings because that really, that matters. We have an internal auditor, which is, you know, a wonderful, wonderful position. They have reports directly to the board and, and audits us all the time, whether I want it or not but serves as a resource. So if anything's found out, it's like, you know, you need to tighten this up, we do. Or, because we also run a business and we'll get, we'll get into kind of managing risk a little bit later on, but um, there are choices there. Sometimes it's black and white. Like you have to do this and we do it and it's it's not negotiable. Sometimes you're talking about business. There's a business risk, you know, maybe, you know, spending resources is really not appropriate, but we identify the risk and we go forward. So we, we have those discussions. Then we have an external audit that it's done every year. They look at our books, they look at our private markets as well, and they frankly they, they look at our internal policies to make sure that we're we're really following best practices. Beyond that, you know I think it's important to mention too that we have a finance department. They may be a special guest at some point in the future too. They have a regulatory function as well, uh, making sure that our books are done, you know, following Gatsby best practices, um, and that our audit is appropriate. And we have a direct liaison to that process as well. I think one other thing that's worth mentioning is we have a, a risk and compliance committee that meets quarterly. What that is, is so we have the CEO, myself, finance, legal and the internal auditors. Basically the regu- people who have a regulatory function in this organization meet on a quarterly basis and we report about investment risks. It's not about you know portfolio restructuring or anything. It's like, is there any litigation coming up? Are there any regulatory changes coming up? Are there any audit changes coming up? Are there any issues that people need to know about um, in order to better Reduce the risk of the whole enterprise. So I I think that's just kind of a quick overview of everything that we do. But it's deep, it's robust, and that compliance culture is something that we live every day. Because at the end of the day, we're here for our participants, and we're mission focused. I gotta tell you, that's what gets me up. I've been been here for 23 years, and serving others—you know, serving that greater good—you know, it just—it makes when you have a tough day, it makes it easy to get back on task.
0: Yeah, I mean, serving the those that serve our communities right, is, is, is part of our, is, is, is our entire mission. Um, and I, I think one thing that, you know, we talked about with fiduciary duty, talk about duty of prudence, for example. So that's where you have your educated staff. That's where you guys continue to learn. That's where we take, we have these processes and things like that. Then there's the duty of, of loyalty is another fiduciary duty, which is avoiding conflicts of interest and ensuring that we're investing assets for the exclusive benefit of our participants. And so this the strength that MERS has with our ethics policy, code of conduct policy, you know, the internal audit and, and items that you mentioned, I think you said it perfectly, we have a culture of compliance. Sometimes it's just black and white. You have to make risk assessments when you're investing because without risk in, you know, money investing, right? There might not always be a reward. And as an institutional investor, you can take some. You have to kind of hedge your risk. And, and but when it comes to, um, to, to legal requirements, when it comes to proper reporting, there's a zero risk tolerance.
1: Here. you know you know and on the on the risk you know whenever we do an investment you know when we do we're going to talk a little bit you know about asset allocation but whenever we we decide what mix we're going to put in the portfolio whether it's a, a public equity investment or a bond investment or a private investment whether we're managing it internally or we're hiring a manager we write down like i mean we put together a report here are the risks because the thing about investing markets go up and down you can identify every risk you can try to mitigate it but sometimes you you know it it's not perfect Sometimes people don't execute. Sometimes you have wars popping up in your grain. Sometimes trade's disrupted. Sometimes it's a natural disaster. You, you know, these things are gonna happen. You try to kind of calculate, okay, what's the worst that can happen, and what's the best that can happen, and then you make a choice. But if you do that, kind of clear-headed, unemotionally, you put together a portfolio that more often than not is gonna win more than it's gonna lose. And if you do that, then you're gonna be
0: successful. So, kinda of like Dan Campbell.
1: Yes. <laughs> Now I would have taken. I would have taken the three. You would have taken. The I three. would have taken the points. But place.
0: statistically, I don't know if you saw this, but statistically, we were seventy-five percent on fourth down, and our kicker from that distance was forty-five percent successful. So,
1: you, you know, we're joking a little bit, but that's I, actually. Seriously. But that, that's a really good point yeah. because the unemotion. So we have a, we have processes in place. So we make decisions, and we and we follow the process. You know, you you have to have a cell discipline. You know when it, you know when do you have enough, when have you captured enough on the upside? If Ricky, when, when you got something losing, is the manager adhering to what they said they would do? Is it just the market cycle? If that's the case, then you stay. But you know you look at the statistics and you're like, okay. You know I, I saw an interview with him and he basically said there's no drama with this. You you know I'm emotional, he's emotional, right? So, but he knows what he's going to do. It's not like he's like, oh well, you know, I'm, I'm flipping the coin. He's like, no. We go for it on this because the odds tell us we're going to win. Absolutely, and that's that's the beauty of having a process and having multiple layers of bodies kind of checking things. Like our investment committee, well, okay, markets are down. You're supposed to rebalance. We rebalance. If we don't, they're going to be like, why didn't we rebalance? I think uh, those are, those are really good points about risk and how you manage it. Yeah,
0: yeah. Well, ha- having the good governance again takes all the emotion out of it as well, which is critical. So, uh, well, <clears throat> our first board meeting of the year is coming up next week. And I know typically, um, at that meeting, we ask the board to review our investment policy statements, sometimes we call those IPS, um, but I know this year, we're also going to be looking at the five-year asset allocation plan. So I think it is time to bring in our special guest to talk about asset allocation and how that ties into governance. So welcome, Mike Schrauben, what is your role on the investments team?
2: Thanks, Kristen. Thanks for the uh, the big buildup. I'll do my best here to, to live up to it. but. My title is Director of Asset Allocation, but I have been with the team for over 17 years now. So in prior roles, I spent a lot of time on both the public and private side of the portfolio in terms of internal asset management, external manager monitoring and selection, as well as building out our diversifying strategies portfolio. But in my current role as Director of Asset Allocation, it's it's really pretty simple in my mind. Um, You know, my main job on a day-to-day basis is to really help us build the best portfolio possible. So if you think about the the different asset classes we can invest in as an institutional investor, we can invest across both public and private markets, we can invest in in stocks and bonds, we can invest in different geographies, whether it be the, the U.S. or internationally or even in places like emerging markets. But my job is to really make sure that as we look at all the different asset classes we can invest in and construct a portfolio, that we're doing so in a manner that allows us to achieve our long-term risk and return objectives. So simplistically speaking, just trying to to guide the team in their efforts to to build the best portfolio possible.
0: Then the board oversees that, so you you have to give the board enough information to uh, be able to make a prudent decision. So what is your process?
2: So we have a a very detailed process in terms of our asset allocation approach. So I oversee a a dedicated team responsible for that. And in our IPS, which you referenced, which I think is probably one of the most important governance governance docs we we have here in the Office of Investments, we outline all the responsibilities in terms of our asset allocation approach and how we are monitoring that on a a month-to-month and quarter-to-quarter basis and ultimately how we are reporting that information to our investment committee and, and to our board to make sure that they are comfortable with the way the portfolio is constructed, that the portfolio is performing as we would expect in terms of not only returns, but also risk, which is probably the most important because ultimately as a long-term investor, we know we have to take risk to to meet our actuarial rate, but we wanna make sure we're being compensated for taking that risk. So we do spend a lot of time looking at the way the portfolio is constructed and how it's performing. And ultimately, on an annual basis, we put together a fairly detailed report, reporting all of this to the board to make sure that we're transparent with our approach and that all the stakeholders at MERS are very comfortable with the way we are allocating the plan's assets.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, so Mike will do it, you know, it's gonna be you know, this month. He'll make, he makes an annual presentation to the board on you know, the asset allocation approach. How it's doing, and he's got you know documents and charts which show we are we are within what we modeled. In other words, we're taking we're either taking the risk we said, hopefully getting the returns. You know, the last couple of years we have, um, but also not taking too much risk. But he does this on an annual basis. So the board is really affirming, reaffirming every year what we do, and then this next year Mike's going to really dig in. And I just want to say the other thing Mike does, investment policy goes back to that culture of compliance, and Mike is really. Uh, the soul of that process. He makes sure that we are following best practices from an industry perspective, and he's uh, a strong asset and has been for for many years. His fingerprints are all over our documents and making sure that we're getting out in front of compliance issue and following best practices in the way that we manage the portfolio. So the
0: Brad Holmes? Yes. Of of, of MERS if you will. will. Um, So um, as to the actual act, though, of setting the goals and setting the allocation, can you walk us through that process and how you set those goals and how you model that?
2: really everything comes back to what is our long-term actual actuarial rate or the assumed rate of return we need to achieve. And so we need to build a portfolio to make sure we deliver that over the long term, which I define as really 10 to 15 plus years. As we build the portfolio, we look across the different asset classes to determine you know, what's the expected return and what's the expected risk for each of those assets. With that, we can then combine them into a portfolio in such a way that allows us to not only achieve the long-term rate of return assumption, but also does so with as little risk as possible. And when I say risk, I just mean volatility, so how the portfolio moves over time. So really our our core objective is making sure we can fund the the pension payments long-term, which comes down to delivering that assumed rate of return. So with our actual asset allocation approach, it, it has changed over the years back in the summer of 2019, we adopted what is known as our valuation-based allocation approach. And I would define value-based allocation as really an ongoing active asset allocation approach centered on asset class valuations. So the basic premise of all investors is really to buy low and sell high, right? You wanna buy assets that are attractively priced allow them to appreciate, and you know, once they're no longer attractively priced, you, you look to sell those assets. So the valuation-based allocation approach allows us to institutionalize, I would say, buying low and selling high. So at any point in time, we could be invested in a variety of stocks or bonds, and our job in the Office of Investments and the asset allocation team's job is to survey the market and understand How are assets trading relative to fair value? So we spend a lot of time actually modeling out individual asset classes to develop our assessment of fair value. And what we're looking to do is any assets that are trading cheap or below fair value, we want to own more of those assets or be overweight. And any assets that are trading expensive or well above our estimate of fair value, we want to be underweight those assets or sellers. And so if you can consistently identify mispriced assets over time, not only from a risk management standpoint, do I think that's the the most important thing, I think it gives you the biggest margin of safety is buying assets at the right price or the the fair price. Uh, I think that sets you up for for long-term investing success. But ultimately, what the the model-driven approach allows us to do too is to stay disciplined even in the face of volatility or fear in the market. So the model gives us objective data in terms of at any point in time, regardless of what's going on in the market, how much fear may be out there, we have a model that's pointing to the correct allocation decisions. And I think that's that's really important when you think back to periods in time like the global financial crisis, or most recently with COVID, a lot of times in the short-term markets are driven by fear and greed. So as a long-term institutional investor, if we can look past fear and greed, and have an approach that allows us to make prudent investing and allocation decisions, that's gonna be ultimately what drives our investing
0: success. So can you give me an example of how you make your determination of fair value with regard to any particular investment?
2: Yeah, I think the the two main assets we invest in are, are stocks and bonds. So all assets have economic value because they generate cash flow. So if you think about in the, case of stocks. When you buy a stock, you receive part ownership in a company. Hopefully that company makes money and delivers earnings and those earnings can then be distributed back to investors in a variety of ways. Probably the most well-known is through dividends. So ultimately the, the cash flows when you own a stock are the dividends that stock pays out. So you can then model the expected dividends over time depending on how that individual company or a basket of companies, for example, the S&P 500 might be performing and then discount those cash flows back to determine fair value. And in the case of bonds, if you think about, well, what's the the economic value of bonds? Well, they all have an interest rate or a coupon rate and you receive periodic cash flows as determined by that, that interest rate. And so we spend a lot of time modeling out global equity and global fixed income asset classes such as U.S. equity or emerging market equity within fixed income, it might be U.S. treasuries or, or U.S. high yield debt, we're then able to, at any point in time, determine what asset classes are cheap or expensive relative to, to fair value. And really all these assessments are done on a long term basis. So our estimate of fundamental fair value really shouldn't change that much over time, but what does change is the market price of those assets. And that's what creates the opportunity because when investors are reacting based on fear or greed, those prices can pretty dramatically disconnect from from fair value. And as a long-term investor, that gives us the opportunity to, to step in and really realize some true value creation and appreciation.
0: Do you have enough data from the previous years in which we've been using these models and this method um, to sort of share with us how you think it's working?
2: Yeah, so that's exactly what we're looking to do this year. When we launched Valuation-Based Allocation in 2019, we asked the board for five years to, to actually build the track record, to have a long enough time period to assess what's working and what's not working. And it needed to be at least five years, which I would define as medium term because the markets over the short term, even one to two year periods can be driven by a lot of external factors. So we wanted to make sure we had at least a, a long enough track record where we can say this was you know, kind of a full market cycle and, and give more credibility to the data. So what we're doing throughout the, the course of this year is exactly what you said, looking at the data in terms of how has the valuation based allocation approach performed what's the value added on the return side have we you know performed in line on the risk side in terms of what we pitched to the investment committee and the board at inception and really just trying to understand has it worked or not what's worked what hasn't worked what could we be doing better going forward do we want to make enhancements to the model or refinements to the model because as with any good model things change over time you need to to have an honest look at how it has performed so we're gonna to continue to do that throughout the course of, of this year, really look at the performance as a group, then relay our findings to our investment committee and board to, to say, here is the data, here is our recommendation, you know, does it make sense to continue this approach? And the data so far does say this has added value. I think if, if nothing else, it's created a lot of discipline in terms of rebalancing the portfolio to very attractive asset classes when there's a lot of fear in the market. I think one of the other big benefits of this valuation-based allocation approach is the way we implement our asset allocation. So because of this approach, we jumped into using ETFs to get a lot of our exposure in the market. So ETFs are exchange-traded funds. They're really passive investment vehicles that are very low cost. And so we've been big users of exchange-traded funds and I think that has created a lot of advantages because they're so liquid. So when I think back to a period like COVID, you know, we were able to, to rebalance a large chunk of the portfolio into attractive opportunities because we adopted the use of ETFs. So you know, there are certain things I think that is, has worked really well about the valuation based allocation approach. And there've been some lessons learned that I think we're going to really hone in on and figure out you know, how can we clean these things up or improve the implementation of valuation-based allocation going forward, but the quick takeaway is it has added value. It's it's allowed us to be more disciplined and, and better investors as a group. But there are certain areas where I think we can make some improvements.
0: We'll have to have maybe you back next year to discuss the results of that review. What do you think, Jeff? I think, think?
2: It, no. I think that I think that's the kind of thing that you
1: know is is worth sharing, and people you know kind of get under the hood a little bit. But it's it's it is the most important um, work that we do. And the beauty of this is, again, we look at the data and then we and it forces us to ask questions. And Mike's right. There's been stuff that's worked. You know, we know like the fixed income side is very successful there. It's a little more predictable. Like when I mentioned at the beginning with equities, right? You know, the large cap, you know, the stocks have been driven by eight. That happened again in 19. Those are things which they don't make sense. Long term, they do not make sense. It just, if you go back through any time period, you know, the top performing stocks for one decade are believe never the top performing the next decade but everyone's always like it's gonna be different this time but stock markets can be very emotional and and you know you almost have to take a much longer-term view but you know we're we're gonna look at the data and, and, and make some and if we have to make changes we make changes that's that's the beauty of the process and I think that's the beauty of having multiple layers of accountability because people are gonna ask you tough questions. We ask ourselves tough questions. And then our job as professionals is to fix it. There's one thing when Mike was talking, I think it's really important. The importance of having a process, institutional investors like pension funds, endowments, um, you know, know, community foundations, they tend to do better than individuals because they have a process, because they take action, right? Individuals who have financial planners tend to do better. I think there was a guy in Detroit a couple annual conferences ago that spoke on that, and the numbers are like, it's big. It's like a percent or two, Um, like it matters. Having discipline is critical because emotions run high in this business. Human beings, you know, are wired to be bad investors. We all are. We are wired to sell at the bottom and buy at the top. You know, the approach we have ensures that we don't do that.
0: Yeah, it's the process part, and then also sort of to kind of loop us back to governance, it's the accountability part. Yeah. Right. And that we have the, the, the appropriate governance structures uh, through our board and through delegation and through monitoring um, to help, help protect techmers and ultimately help protect our, our customers.
2: So. I guess one other thought on that, too, in terms of governance and transparency is also very important. So when we launched Keep. the valuation-based allocation approach, we really wanted to be as transparent as possible to make sure that everyone, not only our investment committee and board, but all of the, the members we serve understand how we build the portfolio, how it's performing, you know, what are the risk characteristics of the portfolio. So the whole intent of all the reports we generate and present is to really make sure people are comfortable with the way the portfolio is constructed and, and performing, and that all comes down to just being very transparent in your approach, and then also very honest in terms of you know what's working and, and what's not working. And and I think it's about objectives too. I was thinking about this the other day. It's like
1: you know, all of us around this table have our own personal objectives, right? Um, You know, some of our managers have very different, you know, objectives. You know, they may be a growth manager, they may be a hedge fund or private equity and they're trying to get high returns. We're trying to beat that actual rate of assumption. That's, you know, which is 7% right now. That's our goal. You know, our goal's not, you know, I want 15%, as Mike knows, every year, up and down market, but that's not our objective. Our objective is to beat that. And that's, um, and the reason that we try to do it in the way we do it is so that we have the liquidity to make sure we can make those pension payments and we have the ability you know when mike says hey it's time to go buy we've got we've got the adequate resources to make sure we're making the pension payments and rebalancing the portfolio
0: well i'm sure our listeners appreciated this look under this peak under the hood today for sure and thanks mike for joining us in the hot seat uh, join us next time to continue our discussions on performance and investment markets look for another episode of Inside MERS Investments next quarter for continued great discussion on MERS investment performance and strategy. This podcast is intended as general information only and should not be regarded as investment advice.